Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at what we think may lie in store during 2023 and what investors should keep an eye on to make the most of their savings. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, Rob Smith, Head of Behavioural Finance, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello, everybody. Happy New Year. I think I'm still just about safe to say that. This week, we will have a gaze into the crystal ball with two of our in-house experts, Rob Smith, Head of Behavioural Finance Unit, and Will Hobbs, our CIO. We'll also try and have a think around what are some of the other notable predictions and worries doing the rounds, and what you as investors can do about it all to make the most of your precious savings. Okay, Will, I heard you say in last week's podcast, while I was still on holiday, that the chances of a global recession in 2023 are still dominating the capital markets conversation. So what are some of the things that investors should be thinking about? Yes, Sarah. So happy new year. Happy new year, everybody. Nice to have you back, Roberto. It feels like a while since Thank we've you. been on together. Yeah. And we're all in a room as well, which is kind of something something quite novel. Luckily, uh, I did test negative for COVID this morning, so just so you're Thank aware. You. Um, but yes, broadly speaking, this is the discussion here is about an economic price being owed for those sharp increases in interest rates last year. The effects on markets, remember, they're instantaneous, actually anticipatory. So as soon as even the mention of higher interest rate comes along, uh, you know, markets adjust their expectations, or at least if it's a plausible mention. Um, But because of lags in the system, it can take a while for these things to actually affect the real economy. So think about how long it takes, not for mortgages to reprice, but for them actually to register, uh, given the degree of fixed rate borrowing, uh, say. Um, Now, there are those arguing pretty vehemently that a global recession will be the price. And there's those arguing in the other direction equally uh, passionately. Um, It's not one or the other, of course, it's not binary. Um, As usual, I'm oversimplifying a lot. However, if you go through all of the various outlooks, professional, academic, and so on, you find worries about all sorts of things, even beyond or linked to a a global recession. So, you know, US civil war at the extreme end, more outright war, or at the very least, uh, you know, People are talking about, you know, a blockade of Taiwan, potentially a US housing collapse, you know, a China public health disaster, which we're going through at the moment. And that doesn't even dip into, you know, domestic news flow. Now, in a way, the problem for investors in balancing all of that perspective gloom, and this is a great reason why we've got Rob here, uh, because there's surely a kind of behavioral element in these kind of gloomy forecasts. But we've got to balance that with the fact that uh, several things, really. First of all, the price of the ac- price of access to the world's capital markets has come down a good deal thanks to an awful year in stocks and bonds last year. Not many investors will need reminding of that. So prospective returns should be a little bit higher. Maybe not one for one, but uh, you know the long term entry point is certainly a lot more attractive than it was at the be- at this time last year. And possibly more importantly, artificial intelligence, the next general purpose technology uh, is swaggering with increasing confidence onto the scene. We saw that with chat GPT, which people are playing around with at the beginning of the year. But as we've said before, the banishment of gut instinct from a variety of transactions and activities around the world promises to make us a lot more efficient and suggests upside medium time to investing. Remember, this is why you invest. It's accessing these kind of, you know, the, the, the proceeds, the economic proceeds of these kind of technological advances. Thank you, Will. And yeah, Rob, I'm keen to get to you and talk around how all this works from a behavioural perspective. 
I know that losses tend to loom larger than gains, but is there a way we can train ourselves to focus on that medium term upside potential and tune out a lot of the short term stuff that's most likely already incorporated into market prices anyway? That's a really good question. So happy new year, Sarah, and to you Will as well. Glad to be back. The two points I make are firstly is that trade-off that you talked about between essentially short-term comfort by avoiding the volatility that's around uh, in the markets as an investor and trade-off between that and you know improve long-term outcomes. And that's what you have to deal with as an investor. You know, you know the, the, the fruit of, of, uh, of your work is born in the long term, but obviously it's that short-term period you have to get through. And, and as Will has just spoken about, you know, although there are many different potential paths forward, you know, that there is a, a gloomy look to the short term for, for sure, um, if, if we look out amongst the news now. Like the, realistically, it's it's difficult to balance those things. We know that things that are going to make us more comfortable in the short term have a big power to them. And therefore, the best way is to really try and avoid some of that. You know, don't don't obsess over you know the, the shorter term market outlook. The reality is, as an investor, you know, although the path um, you know affects you, what should be important is the outcome, and your outcome is generally you know further further away as a, as a long term investor. And so, it's really to get behind that story that Will was talking about in terms of what are the opportunities, what's that medium to long term kind of opportunity set look like, and actually, do we think that? it's still worthwhile being an investor. And I guess the best way to do that is to try and tune out, you know, so as much as people might find this laughable, like actually reading less news can make you more informed. And actually there's some good examples of well-known individuals who've, who've pretty much taken a hiatus from reading news because actually there's a strong belief that it doesn't make you more informed at all. Um, it actually can make you less informed in some ways. But it's really about trying to avoid facing lots of little short-term decisions. How do, you, how do you take that away from yourself? Because that's when you're going to be more likely to give in to those sorts of urges to you know, do something. So the more you can kind of automate in terms of you know, like monthly saving and monthly investment, the more you can kind of delegate, the better in some ways, because it means you're not facing those, those same decisions on a more regular basis. I think the second point I just want to pick up on that you talked about and that Will also talked about was around, you know, things already being incorporated into prices and market efficiency and the fact that it's it's easy to be driven into thinking, you know, or, or I guess believing a, a fairly what, we, what I would call a simple narrative based expectation of the world. So that means, you know, the news looks looks not great. There's a narrative that we're going into a difficult economic period, which no one will, will necessarily argue with you know, worries about recession and therefore prices, surely future prices must fall as a result of that. And that's the kind of simplified narrative that's very sometimes easy to to be swayed by. But the reality is we talked about markets are efficient. That news that you're looking at is to some extent already reflected in those prices as much as it's important news. And and the reality or or data, I should really say, because it's the data that's important. And the reality is that even if, as I believe, markets aren't maybe quite as efficient as Will would like to, to believe, the reality is that can you have confidence, strong enough confidence to know 
when those markets aren't efficient and to know when, you know, whatever's being priced in and the expectations that are being priced in are not in line with what expectations should be priced in given, you know, what's around the corner. You know, still no one is omnipotent, so even if markets aren't efficient, to be able to spot when they're not at their most is the most difficult thing. Omniscient, not omnipotent. Isn't that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, just to correct yeah, you on the way. No, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to be embedded because you said <laughs> like to believe. I felt yes, offensive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like to believe anything. Yes. No, sorry, yeah. interrupted. No, 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 but that, that, was, the, that was the point. It's, okay. it's that even if, you know, you think that opportunities may exist and, and, you know, we do, that's why we have our investment process, which has tactical calls in it. The reality is finding those is... is Full-time job. It is very difficult. Yeah. Full-time job, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, requires a level of transparency about how confident you can be in any path of the future. No, I totally agree, obviously. And, I, and, you know, as a side point, that's why we have teams of specialists doing this, focused all the time on different bits of the market, not just having a look at the overall market and saying, oh, I fancy having a look at sort of Taiwan today or something else. We have, you know, we're lucky enough in a big organisation like us to be about both in-house and outside to have lots of specialist teams focusing on the areas where you could potentially have some inefficiencies, even if we disagree about the exact amount. And, and, and also, if you think about some of those risks that, you know, some of those terrifying sounding risks I highlighted earlier, remember that they are risks, not certainties. You know, the US could avoid uh, recession. There are paths to that. China's abrupt switch from zero COVID could throw up you know, no new variants of concern and harm a lot less than fears. You know, those worrying about a US civil war could have actually missed peak populism um, this last year, not just in the US, but globally. For the US specifically, uh, we saw actually reassuringly bipartisan moves to shore up some of the administrative details of the transfer of executive power, the Electoral Count Act, the changes to that. And that's actually, in my opinion, of many people's much more knowledgeable opinion, have actually significantly re reduced the chance of future coups and major uh, missteps there. Furthermore, I think there are plausible, maybe I'm too optimistic here, you guys will be able to challenge me, but there are plausible voices tentatively noting that populism can, um, you know, often burn itself out, you know, it runs out of combustible, combustible uh, societal material in a sense. The majority, the idea here is the majority of voters eventually tire of the daily psychodrama that comes with it. Uh, you know, the constant drama, particularly with social media providing us with so much access. Populist movements often are a little bit more, uh, a, a little bit happier uh, in opposition in a way, rather than with the boring day to day, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, troubles of just running government. Um, US midterms were a firm rebuff to, you know, election deniers and various other extreme voices. Uh, and actually, even you know, the very narrow House majority that you're seeing the lower chamber in the US that you're seeing cause quite a lot of uh, news at the moment uh, in the US. Uh, you know, you can make the argument that actually this increases the value of those in the middle of the political spectrum on either side of the aisle. Uh, defectors uh, will be key to sort of any legislative su successes. So, you know, for every kind of horrible thing that gets the headlines in your outlook, and uh, don't forget that uh, people only read your outlook if you're saying something absolutely awful about the world ahead, then there's also the counterpoint where there are sort of some paths, and we don't know whether they're equally plausible or not, where, but you need to sort of force yourself to make the positive case as well as the negative case, uh, which the media is so incentivized uh, to give us. Mm, interesting. Well, I wanted to pick up on something, maybe move away from politics for a moment, um, that you mentioned earlier about the potential of a real estate crash in the US. Mm. Is there a real chance we could be staring at another kind of 2008 style collapse? Oh, let's hope not. 
stay optimistic. I, like I am it. going to stay optimistic. I mean, you know, we've got to say, you know, remember the IMF did a very deep dive on US subprime. I think it was in Q1 of 2007 and gave it the all clear and actually praised, you know, the outcome was kind of praise for the diversification of risk. So, and that's not sort of sloppiness or stuff like that. That was, you know, really, really clever people having a really deep look. So, we want to be wary of overconfidence here, as usual. And there are a number of important voices worrying about this. It's a giant market. U.S. real estate represents about 15% of global real assets. Um, and you are seeing some evident signs of distress in the wake of last year's surge in interest rates. The question of, you know, really is, is how much of the huge increases in home prices seen in the last five or so years in the U.S. will be given back and what over what time frame and what does it mean? For those looking for more detail on this, I, uh, rather than sort of go through the whole thing here, I point you actually to uh, Adam Tooze's FP Economics podcast. I think it's called Ones and Twos. They've got a very good bit on this. I think there are a few things for us to console ourselves with personally. So one, housing supply can prove pretty responsive in such situations. So people who were looking to sell can hold off if they can. Um, this tends to sort of more quickly bring demand and supply back into sort of equilibrium, settling prices a little bit. Two, don't believe the scare stories about a precise return to the glo global financial crisis. The associated kind of dirty structures, the private label mortgage-backed securities, they've not returned in scale. And foreign banks are no longer big and speculative players in, in US housing. Um, furthermore, much of the mortgage debt is in a sense, backed by the US government directly via the government-sponsored uh, mortgage brokers. So Fannie and Freddie will have heard of these. Well, actually, their share has actually grown since the last crisis. So yes, uh, a softening in highest prices may be in motion. And yes, that is likely to be a headwind of consumption via something called the wealth effect. People feel a bit poorer, so they spend a bit less, uh, or they are a bit poorer in asset terms, so they spend a bit less. Um, and yes, also, the house building sector looks in some distress, but this is quite a small part of the US economy. But add them all up and our hunch is that you get an economic headwind, not a catastrophe. Okay, interesting. I've Thank got you. my fingers crossed here, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, keep your fingers crossed. Tell us a bit about the UK residential property market. The news flow doesn't appear to be very encouraging. What's your views? Yeah, I mean, again, this is the sort of interest rate story. Um, it's quite sort of an obvious link. We all understand. This is one that we sort of, you know, mostly understand, isn't it? The housing market is wobbly a bit, like you say, following the... Uh, you know, following the mini budget last year, you had, as you all well know, government borrowing costs surged and mortgage rates with them. Interestingly, government borrowing costs quickly settled back, but higher mortgage rates seem to have so far proved a bit stickier. Um, again, we would hesitate to call a house price crash, but we have been saying for some time that UK residential price house prices looking ahead, they seem a bit less likely to provide both a place to live in and investment-like returns. That seems to be an okay assumption to make. Uh, and there are some uh, academic papers looking at sort of the relationship between real interest rates and house prices, finding that as inflation-adjusted interest rates rise, you should find house prices fall over time. But remember, you know, drivers of house prices, you know, they are what's called heterogeneous. So it's quite difficult to come up with one and just say, this is going to drive all house prices equally. And the reason why we recommend, you know, exposure to the world's capital markets as well as a house to live in, if you can, is that in a way, your investment exposure isn't to one street in the UK, it's to the world economy. And your long term savings are better on that, uh, better founded on that, uh, on that footing, in our opinion. 
Staying with the UK, there is a lot of very negative commentary and maybe headline grabbing about many aspects of the UK at the moment. Do you and the team share this apparent gloom? Yes. Uh, No, I mean, sorry, I don't want to say yes straight away. I was going to say, yes, there is a lot of gloom around the UK. (laughs) I don't share the view completely. There's a little bit of uh, sort of nuance here. There are, you know, I mean, what you're seeing at the moment is there are proliferating studies hitting the news of, first of all, of, you know, illustrating the economic headwinds uh, apparently imposed by Brexit. One pretty plausible account compares the economy's current state uh, with a counterfactual UK economy that didn't leave. Uh, That's obviously, you know, there are lots of criticisms about this approach, the doppelganger approach. But this one is it's a pretty sort of, I think, worthy effort. That find that study found uh, 40 billion of extra tax revenues uh, per annum in the economy that remained as such. Um, Not far away, actually, ironically, from the fiscal holder, the Chancellor and now Prime Minister uh, Sunak has been trying to repair. But in a sense, um, our problem goes further back, uh, according to many anyway. So the flatlining labour productivity growth, so the growth in efficiency of each worker enabled by technology and tools and so on and, and learning by doing, of the last 15 years, roughly, represents the worst period of measured productivity growth uh, labour productivity growth for the UK growth economy in literally hundreds of years. So there was one study going back 250 years. Now, the earlier data, less plausible, all that kind of thing. The point is, it's pretty gloomy. And real disposable income per person is now expected to be a third lower in 27, 28 than we might have expected if we'd just continued on the pretty steady trend that was in place from 1948 up to 2008. So that's basically a function of this amazing period of flatlining, amazing is the wrong word there, flatlining, a period of flatlining product productivity. Some of that is global, but there is stuff that's specific to the UK. Now, there's simply no simple way of kind of condensing this debate into a pithy answer or a tweet. You should avoid those who try. But the factors at work, you know, the factors at work are gigantically complex and still hotly hotly debated and also vulnerable, uh, I think, to pre-existing political and other biases. Rob might have something to say here. However, the ebbing of the uh, ICT revolution, the information community, communications technology revolution, the effects of that, the resulting efficiency gains have, have seemingly been squeezed out. That's a global factor. And actually, help might be on the way here. Back to my first point, as the next big, big technological revolution may finally be at hand. AI spells the welcome death of gut instinct, among many other things, like I said, But the winners at country and company level will tend to be those who work out quickest how to use it and how to adapt and how to stay at that technological frontier as much as possible. That could be the UK. We've just got to find our mojo a little bit. Very interesting, Will. But you did leave out, where are interest rates heading? (laughs) I left it out deliberately. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, uh, for the for the short term, I, I, that is the, the the question. One of the questions. Um, we may get a bit of relief here. There's a suspicion that if the official forecasts and inflation are right, laughter at the back is unnecessary, obviously. But the you know you could find that inflation comes down a bit quicker than people expect this year. That's one of the things that I think uh, you know might be plausible to say. Although, as we say, inflation forecasting don't get too hurt up on it, and that may mean that interest rates peak and come down a little bit quicker than currently people are expected. Uh, As usual, the overall message is don't get too gloomy. Yes, these last 15 years stand out, um, but the future, as always, contains a range of outcomes, some of which can be affected by government policies, some of which can be affected by just chance, luck, all sorts of other stuff, and some of which can be affected by global factors, like these kind of incoming global waves of technological revolution. So, yes. 
Okay, I noticed you dodged that one, but thank you. <laughs> um, actually, one of the other byproducts of last year's kind of surge in interest rates around the world is kind of where I'd like to finish off, as there does seem to be no shortage of commentators arguing that we're now in a different world to the one we lived through in the decades or even decades up to the pandemic. A massive part of this is the level of interest rates, so we will be talking about this for time to come. <laughs> But cryptocurrencies and multiple other speculative assets have been dismissed as relics of that low interest rate environment. So, Rob, we'll breathe a side of release. I want to come to you with this one. You know, what are your thoughts here around, you know, how can we gauge what and who to listen to? Yeah, that's a, a million dollar question, isn't it? Who should you listen to? Uh, me, no. Yes. Uh, I like yes, to you, Rob, yeah. so yeah, no, keep no, talking. I'm very happy to say that. Yeah, <laughs> blow your own trumpet. Think, well, the first thing I'd say is probably less than you're inclined to, uh, <laughs> or at least with a view to take any kind of action over. Um, as I talked about before, like a lot of what you might di- digest as kind of news and commentary isn't necessarily what I would call knowledge. You know, it's a lot of it's kind of opinion, and that obviously can be hugely biased, and a lot of it can be conjecture uh, that doesn't have a huge amount of uh, data or, or confidence to, to go alongside it, which means, you know... Apart from being entertaining in value, you know what's what are you what are you gaining from that sort of transaction? So I think you know you, there will continue to be no shortage of people happy to kind of speak out on any subject, from you know investing to, to anything, and social media brings more of those people out to a greater audience. Be selective of who you listen to. Uh, I'd say try not to choose those who seem to air strong kind of political beliefs, especially actually with those that align to your own. Uh, you know, something we've talked about a lot before around sort of confirmation bias, and it's very easy just to find people who have similar views to yourself and then align yourself with those opinions. Uh, but we find that that's not the best way to, to, to garnish ac- accurate knowledge and a balanced kind of view of the world. So, you know, one of the things we'd say is, you know, think about those making sort of broad sweeping generalized comments that tend to simplify the world into something that can be summarized so easily because the world and investment and markets are just is not that simple it is complex and anyone that sort of takes that away tends to be doing that because that provides a nice narrative that's easy to understand um, not necessarily actually anywhere near the truth and then i think sadly it is not something that is provided for us because it's not something that seems to be uh, valued on mass. But track records and incentives are really important when thinking about where you look for news and who you believe and trust. And not everyone puts out forecasts that are easy to to hold up ex post. But you know where you can try and look for people who you know have the ability to actually follow what they've what they've said and, and judge whether it's been you know good or bad reflection of what's actually happened um, and then an incentives was my last point around what are the incentives that are driving people is it just around readership therefore actually how do you know that what's being generated is is closer to the truth rather than things that are just going to get read i think what's really interesting is you know the bbc is obviously something that's been held out as 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 a, a bastion of of kind of truth for for the british population and it's come under a lot of flack kind of in probably in the social media age but what's interesting is when you see a source that gets almost equal amounts of of flack from both 
sides of a political spectrum, it's probably a good a good indication <laughs> that actually you know they're somewhere in the in the middle. But you know, even then, you know, it's, it's a case of making sure you you tune out as much as you can, really. And yeah, it's it's data is important, and, and, and actually, good interpretation of data is rare. Opinion is cheap and easy, as they say. You know, there are there are some individuals who seem to do that quite well. Someone I like a lot. Just as a, I guess, an example is so John Byrne Murdoch of the Financial Times, who is actually a data scientist by background, but provides. I say there's, there's, you can't really write, you can't be a journalist without any opinion. But the reality is that there's a lot of Careful data back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so so your point. The, the other point, just when you when you were saying that, and because I made a big New Year's resolution, not big. I made a New Year's resolution to read more stuff I disagreed with and listen to more stuff I disagreed with last year. And the point about it is exhausting. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's so, like, easy <laughs> to read stuff you agree with. You just think you get this warm glow of, like, oh, you know, like, so-and-so agrees with me or I agree with him, yeah. uh, whatever. Yeah. But actually constantly trying to look for stuff you disagree with, it's kind of exhausting. So, But it is worthwhile. I think it's a great... It's a great point. The other point, just just with regards to your question on on the interest rate piece this year, I mean, there are a few interesting papers looking at the accumulated effects. So you're seeing now a lot of papers come in looking at, because there's enough data to sort of probably have a look at it, having a look at some of the accumulated effects of the period of very low interest rates that ran into the pandemic uh, and that very easy monetary policy that characterized the last few decades. What of the world today is a byproduct of this extraordinary period of interest rates and monetary policy? Now, one interesting aspect is the kind of well-documented rise in something called market concentration across many corporate sectors. Essentially, there is less competition. So the likes of Facebook, Google, Amazon, I'm just coming up with some names here, the old super, some of the sort of superstar firms, they're facing less competition now than they were a key part of in their way up, if you think about it. Now, this paper would argue that there would they see a role for low interest rates here. And there's another quite famous paper, which makes the link between interest rates uh, approaching zero sustainably, low measured productivity and falling competition. There's a bit more to it than all of that. But it's quite interesting, I think. However, the effects of interest rates, I think the point here is they're powerful, and not all of them are intended. And some of them we won't be able to see for some time. Higher interest rates are going to be painful for many households, of course, that's the first point. But there are some potentially positive side effects that emerge as well. So steering talent and capital away from crypto cul-de-sacs may ultimately be useful if this talent and capital is redeployed um, effectively. Some would also argue that with, you know, you might see greater dispersion, greater difference in the performance between stocks, uh, which could, equities, which could help, help uh, could be helpful for stock pickers. I'm less sure of that, actually, the evidence here, but in truth, but it, it may be something to, um, maybe something to consider. Just some thoughts in terms of you know, because I mean, the effect of interest rates is, of course, pervasive. It's not just what happens to us as borrowers. There's all sorts of Secondary, consequences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for incentives and all sorts of things, aren't there? So, you know, and we only see these slowly over time. It's, you know, fascinating. Fascinating indeed. So maybe final question, which I know neither of you are going to like, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Looking ahead in 2023, what should we be looking out for? Tricky elections? Have you got any other kind of hard forecasts I can hold you to? <laughs> Rob, uh, go yeah, on. Yeah, you go first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, Point forecast, please. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. So I think the S&P, no. Um, <laughs> yeah. For me, so something I'm 
am interested in more than the others possibly is uh, around consumer data. I think it's very interesting. The U.S. consumer is still very powerful in terms of uh, macroeconomic outlook, but it's interesting for me how how perceptions and consumer perceptions are shaped, and and because reality is that that's really what shapes and feeds into behaviors and they don't always align with the reality so inflation is, is is a good point and actually the fact that some consumers see perceive that price is still going up even when they're not and vice versa and that can how that can be affected by different things that's quite interesting mckinsey have a a really quite good consumer sentiment survey they do and i think that's due out there's another one due out um, they do that every quarter really and was due, due out kind of towards the end of Q1 2023. But there's lots of other, you know, consumer uh, trackers and that sort of things. Deloitte have one and, and, and there's some more official kind of stats as well. I'll leave the hard forecast to Will. Uh, Two decimal places as yeah, well, as yeah, usual. Yeah. Yes. Because um, <laughs> then I can then I can judge you on them. Yes. But what I, what I will say is my, my prediction is you'll continue to see overconfidence in commentaries <laughs> and forecasts. <laughs> From Will. <laughs> from, from many. No, I, well, yeah, I, yeah, no, that's fine. The, 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 I think what I would say is, I, I think the commentary from what you read in the news, but also the, um, you know, those trying to provide insight will no doubt get worse or is likely to get worse before it will get better. However, as we've talked about and we've tried to talk about before, for, for investors, we should try to be dialing that down as much as possible. 100%. The thing I'll say is you don't, you don't need accurate short-term forecasts to be a good investor. In fact, I'd say it's really about understanding those long-term drivers of economies and returns and productivity, the things that Will has been, been talking about. Technology. 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 Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I would obviously dodge that question as well. Every day is a vital day for the things that you think you can see and the things that mostly you can't. Risk is like an iceberg. Some of it you see, most of it you can't until you run into it. And I think that's, you know, it's about building yourself a sufficiently resilient boat to be able to weather all of that and get through and get through to the promised land, which is kind of, you know, technological nirvana. And that's where all the returns come from. But uh, I mean, uh, you know, things to think about, certainly, you know, Taiwan and China, that's definitely one that crops up a lot in outlooks. It's definitely one to watch this year. And that in the context of the evolution of Washington's stance towards China, this is really, you know, the surprising thing about the Biden administration has been a giant step up uh, in the US trade war by that administration. If you look at the number of products and companies now uh, on the US uh, no-go lists. However, a thought for the year ahead, if that's not too much of a dodge, goes back to that familiar obsession with the recipe that hauled the world out of millennia of stagnation to the jaw-dropping gains in living standards of the last 250 years. Remember, in 1820, 90% of the world's population... I can see Sarah. I'm laughing. Oh, I'm loving it. I'm laughing. Well, no, but remember, I mean, so, nine, so you can look all this data up and check it. So in 1820, 90% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. That figure is now below 10%. So the work is not done... But understanding what went right as well as what can be improved is vital. Now, there are loads of theories. We've gone through all this hundreds of times on this call. Not all, you know, there's not just one thing. There's, they've all got a role. But the debate is, you know, really about how much the sort of the proportions of each, each ingredient. So from better institutions to sort of to a particular cultural setting to all sorts of other factors that it's sort of helped to create this kind of thing. However, one thing to mull over, I think, comes from a, a, a very famous economic historian called uh, Joel Mokir, amazing 
writer. You should all read his stuff. But he points out, he points to the emergence over the course of the 18th, 17th, 18th, 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries uh, of a virtuous and self-reinforcing link between the acquisition of useful knowledge, not just scientific, it's broader than that, uh, and the growth in living standards. It's basically an attitude of inquiry. The search for explanatory knowledge became seen as profitable. Now, that's key to understanding the potential for AI to to sort of, you know, to what, what it can achieve for us, uh, to find answers beyond the reach of, you know, elegant formula and theory. Now, one final example, just to finish this off, and I know we've held you all for way too long, but I, this was a great example to me anyway, and it's about economic forecasting. But it's the use of AI to predict economic growth at the hyper-local level. There was a paper that was produced on this, and if anyone wants to know about it, I can send it on. So they use daytime satellite imagery. Now, there is, this is very nascent, this technology, but the results are simply sensational. So highly accurate 10 year ahead forecasts achieved with, within a city block. Now, the, impl- the implication is that rather than incomprehensible chaos as the world economy sometimes appears, some economic systems have patterns and regularities that are just too complica- complicated, complex, to Rob's word, to be summarized by theory, but can be com- captured and kind of generalized by AI potentially. And that just gives you a taste of some of the advances that may be ahead to our understanding and the growth of useful knowledge, which is key to economic growth. Lovely place to end it, Will. Thanks for leaving us on a high. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Will, for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Look forward to continuing the conversation next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.